space in front of us, um, visualize the Buddha, his body made of golden light, surrounded by all the other Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. And they're all looking at you with acceptance and compassion. We think that we're leading all of the sentient beings and generating the thoughts and feelings described in the recitations. I take refuge until I am awakened in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. By the merit I create, by his gauging and generosity, and the other far-reaching practices, may I attain Buddhahood in order to benefit all sentient beings. I take refuge until I have awakened in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. By the merit I create, by engaging in generosity, and the other far-reaching practices, may I attain Buddhahood in order to benefit all sentient beings. I take refuge until I have awakened in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the 
the song.
understand and be able to put into practice all the teachings on how to develop concentration and develop serenity. response to our request and more light and nectar flow from his body into us and then with a Buddha on the crown of the head feet sentient around us also light flows from those Buddhas into all the sentient beings and think that it purifies us so that we can really understand these teachings and put them in practice and be successful in cultivating concentration and serenity. Before we actually begin the teachings, let's remember our bodhicitta motivation and make sure that we have a positive attitude, one imbued with love and compassion, and one that reaches beyond the happiness of this life, wanting to attain full awakening. interesting is in this text all the other meditations have written out you know the direct requesting verses and now it's stopped <laughs> yeah quite interesting that he stopped uh, in these last two sections you know which are the ones uh, that are kind of most important where he goes into more detail that he stopped the request, whereas in the ones that didn't have so much detail, he had the request. So we actually started talking about um, this section on how to create shamatha or serenity uh, last time I was here. So we talked about, um, you know, the, the qualities necessary in terms of the place and your mental state and so on. Uh, that are necessary in order to really create serenity. 
that we can't just, you know, expect to gain total single-pointedness in the middle of our busy days as we're going here and there thinking of this, that, and the other thing, although we certainly can improve our concentration. Okay, so, um, and then we talked a little bit about the object, uh, and our author here highly recommends that we use the, the, the visualized image of the Buddha as our object of meditation. Using the breath is fine. The breath is a neutral object. Meditating on the image of the Buddha has special benefits because as you visualize the Buddha, then of course you feel closer to the Buddha. And, uh, you know, and that makes a big difference. And you think about the Buddha's qualities and that inspires you to want to attain them. And then also, you know, at the time you die, then you have that imprint of thinking about the Buddha and imagining the Buddha. And that's very helpful to us when we die. So he, he encourages us in that way. Although, you know, there are a whole diversity of other uh, things that we can use as the object of our serenity. Okay? And then he also uh, said, you know, when you're usually the visualized image of the Buddha, now try and make it live, made of light, not just a, a flat statue or a, a, a metal, uh, I mean a flat painting or a metal statue. And, uh, you know, know what it looks like, look at your object and then visualize and keep that object. So if all of a sudden, instead of the Buddha, you're seeing Tara, you go back to the Buddha. You know, if the Buddha, instead of being golden color, turns purple with pink polka dots, you go back to golden color. You know, if uh, instead of one Buddha, now you have five, you go back to one. If instead of, you know, the Buddha being this big, they say, you know, about a body length in front of you, four inches, and all of a sudden he's really big or really teeny, then, you know, you go back to the way it was, okay? Because our mind is very good at imagining and redesigning everything, yeah. So uh, if we don't restrain the mind in that way, then we wind up completely going on our imagination trips of imagining this, that, and the other thing. Yeah. And I know somebody who would tell me about his visualizations. You know, oh, I started meditating on white Tara and the what letter the you know, the nectar was white, but then it became yellow and I realized it was Manjushri in front. And then Manjushri got really big and he was sitting in the middle of the Kala Chakra Mandala. So then I visualized the Kala Chakra Mandala and you know, and on and on. And then he said at the end, Is that okay? You know, and it was kind of a person who wouldn't take no for an answer. So a little bit difficult situation, <laughs> okay? But uh, you know, um, we try to to keep the visualization, you know, as it should be, and keep the practice as it should be, you know, without you know deciding that uh, you know instead instead of holding a, an alms bowl in his hand like this that the Buddha should be waving to us, you know, wanting to visualize him like that. You know, 
because all these symbolisms of colors and body language and so on have a lot of meaning and really affect our mind. Okay, so we're going to continue now with the section. So um, it's on the part that says, moreover, generate the firm aspiration, thinking during this session of such duration, I will not let laxity or excitement arise, and if perchance they should, I shall immediately identify them and abandon them. Okay, so that's where we are. Um, so he, you can see when we think at the beginning during this session of such and such duration that we have in mind how long we want the session to be. And that's quite good because uh, if, we, if we don't have an idea of how long we want it to be, then if we get distracted, then we stand up and leave Im- immediately. Or even if it's going well, we keep going, going, going until we're overly exhausted. So it's good to have an idea of our capacity and do that, but without always looking at the clock, uh, you know, and doing that. But when you're developing uh, serenity, they say it's very good to have short sessions. So like five minutes or ten minutes, then open your eyes, look around, stand up if you need to, but don't go anywhere, and then sit down and then start again. Okay? And so here, saying, you know, that we're going to, reminding ourselves, we're going to concentrate, and if laxity and excitement arise, instead of welcoming them in and letting them run the show, we're going to apply the antidotes. Okay? So then he continues, thus focus one pointedly on the object, not forgetting it and reinforcing your mindfulness or remembrance of it from time to time. Okay, so when we start start with our session, we go through the details, if you're using that visualized image of the Buddha, you go through the details of what the Buddha looks like. And then this mental factor called mindfulness uh, is related to memory and is sometimes translated as memory, okay? Because you are remembering the object of meditation in this case, okay? So you visualize it, you remember it, you hold it in your mind, you know, as best as you can, not forgetting it and then reinforcing your mindfulness from time to time, okay? So by generating mindfulness in this way, it helps you to keep your mind on the object. And so that helps us cultivate uh, stability, which is one of the two principal qualities we want to develop in uh, serenity, the other one being clarity, okay? So maintaining that awareness continually is the excellent method for beginners to attain the nine stages of sustained attention. Okay, so using our memory, our mindfulness, to focus again and again and remember the object is the way, you know, we begin. And then here he mentions the nine stages of sustained attention. In one of my Treya's books, he goes through these nine stages. I'm not going to do them here. Probably when we have the uh, concentration retreat over uh, 
Labor Day. Yeah, we can go through them then. But basically what you're doing is it's just stages starting out from not being able to concentrate, being able to keep your object, your mind on the object a little while, to then your mind, uh, you know, being able to stay on it longer, but falling under the influence of, of um, excitement, so having to bring it back, and falling under the influence of laxity, so having to perk it up, and then, you know, gradually getting more, greater clarity and greater stability. So you go through these nine stages, and then after that, uh, then you have uh, mental pliancy, you have physical pliancy and mental pliancy, and the bliss of, uh, of pliancy. You, know, you have those things come up, and then after that, that leads to generating uh, actual serenity. Okay? So he says, in brief, meditate on genuine meditative stability according to what is said. The eight antidotes reject the five faults. Relying on them will cause it to arise. So that's a quote from Maitreya's Madhyanta Vibhaga Karika. Okay, so it's probably where the, the text for the nine stages of sustained attention are mentioned, probably. Okay, so now it's going into this thing of, of um, five uh, faults and eight antidotes. Now, you, remember, you may remember from other teachings we've had on concentration that there's another set of five hindrances. Okay, that, that's talked about also in the Pali text and in the Sanskrit text. Those five hindrances are not the same as the five faults. Okay, so we can talk about the five hindrances later, but we're talking about the five faults now. And this is according to Maitreya. And the five faults have eight antidotes that help overcome them. Okay? So he says, therefore, you must rely on the eight antidotes, which are the counterforces that oppose the five faults. So the first, then he begins going through the different faults and the antidotes. So the fault that arises when you start to concentrate is... Da-da-da. Laziness. Okay? So, uh, laziness here is the inability to get ourselves to the cushion. Yeah. I think you, you, you're familiar with this one? Yeah. Or even you get yourselves to the cushion, and, you know, all of a sudden, well, you have to do this other meditation or that other meditation. But forget the meditation because it's really time to answer email and return phone calls and, you know. Okay, so all this, the mind that keeps us extraordinarily busy uh, with distracted to all sorts of other things is called laziness. So don't think laziness is just lying around doing nothing. It's also keeping ourselves busy with irrelevant stuff. Okay, so laziness has four antidotes. So the first one is faith uh, or confidence that perceives the advantages of concentration. 
So if you want to apply the antidote to laziness, first you have to generate this faith or confidence in concentration by thinking of its advantages. Okay? So, what are the advantages of concentration? Well, you know, you could actually maybe stay on something and get it done. (laughs) Yeah? You know, stay on your object of meditation and really focus on it. Whatever you're meditating on, if you're meditating on bodhicitta or emptiness or whatever, you're able to stay on the object and really penetrate it uh, and, and familiarize yourself with it. Okay? So that certainly is a big benefit, I think, of concentration. And then, of course, by being able to concentrate on virtuous things, the mind becomes, you know, more familiar with them, so we create more, more positive karma, and, uh, you know, that then we can also use the, the concentration to apply the antidotes to make them more sustained in our mind, so that too benefits us. And, you know, it really helps all of our meditation in general. And then if you have the wish to be born in the former and formless realms, you can be born there. Um, our teachers usually recommend against generating that wish because it's very easy if you're born there because it's so blissful to just get knocked out by the bliss and stay in those states until the karma is exhausted and then the only way to go when you're up is down and so you fall into the desire realm problems again after that. Okay, but, uh, you know, concentrations very, would be very, very nice, don't you think? You know, instead of having your mind act like a, a wild elephant or, you know, be like one of the turkeys, you know, like here and there and here and there, and, yeah, or be like the cat, <laughs> you know, the cat in summer, <laughs> okay? Okay, so um, faith or confidence in the practice and concentration is the first one. Then that leads to um, aspiration that is drawn to concentration. So from having confidence in the qualities, the advantages of concentration, then we generate the aspiration to attain it. Okay? Having virtuous aspirations is always good, because when we aspire, when we have a strong aspiration, then our mind exerts joyous effort, which is the third. Okay, because remember this first one has four antidotes. So then we, the third one is joyous effort, so um, which strives after concentration. And then that leads to the fourth one, which is pliancy, which is the fruit of the effort. And so pliancy, uh, mental pliancy, is the ability, it's like the serviceability of the mind where you can put your mind on whatever object you want and it's going to stay there so you can really use your mind as you want to in your practice. And then physical serviceability means your body doesn't ache and isn't twitching and isn't restless and everything like that. So. 
you know, pliancy is definitely the antidote of becoming laziness, but it's one that we have to cultivate slowly, you know, by first having confidence, aspiring for it, exerting effort. Okay? So those four are the antidotes to the first hindrance, which is the first fault, which is uh, laziness. Okay, when striving after concentration, forgetting the instruction is a fault. Its antidote is mindfulness. So the second fault is called forgetting the instruction. So we think, oh, it means forgetting what our teacher told us how to practice. It doesn't, that's not actually the meaning of it, okay? The actual meaning of it is we forget the object of meditation. So instruction here means the object of meditation. And so you can see that we sit down to try and visualize the Buddha and, you know, okay, maybe we get some kind of yellow blob, you know, that's good enough. You start out with whatever you get, but then you lose that yellow blob, yeah? And all of a sudden, there you are lying on the beach with your boyfriend or girlfriend, uh, you know, eating cheesecake and, uh, you know, daydreaming about whatever you want to daydream about, okay? So, um, forgetting the instruction means that you lose your object of meditation and the mind goes off to some other object, okay? Usually, the mind goes off to an object of attachment and so they call that excitement. But above excitement, there's a broader category which is called scattering. So when the mind scatters to different topics, so we don't always go to an object of, of uh, attachment, daydreaming about, you know, some wonderful thing that we want to experience or reliving some wonderful thing that we already experience. Yeah, or designing how to improve a wonderful thing. <laughs> yeah, okay, so we don't always go to objects of attachment. Have you noticed sometimes when your mind gets distracted, you, you go to objects of aversion? Yeah, and there the mind, you know, all of a sudden you're remembering what your brother or sister said to you when you were five years old, and you're getting mad. I remember when I did Vajrasapa retreat, I discovered I was still mad at my second grade teacher for not letting me be in the class play. Um, you know, so all these things come up and you get angry about them and, you know, you remember that you did one more dish, washing the dishes than somebody else and how ungrateful they are and how unfair it is that you shouldn't have to slave over the dishes and wash one more dish than everybody else washed. And, and so you get very angry about it and very discontent and, you know, and then the mind extrapolates from there and goes, people are always treating me like this and the whole world's unfair and I always have to do more work than everybody else and poor me and blah, blah. Right? Okay, so we start going off on an, uh, a, a scattering or a distraction. That is aversion. Yeah. Most of the time it's, it's attachment. Sometimes it's aversion. 
okay? It may sometimes be, you know, jealousy or arrogance too. Yeah, we get all puffed up and we're imagining, oh, I'm going to be this great meditator and, you know, have pliancy, mental and physical pliancy. And they say even when you do that, you can float in the sky. And I'm going to do that, then everybody's going to respect me finally. And, you know, and they'll give me offerings, which wouldn't hurt at all. And, you know, and then I can take a cruise. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Yeah, so you do your arrogance trip, or sometimes it's jealousy. You know, everybody else can meditate, but I'm the only one who can't. I'm so jealous of these people because they can do the practice, and I'm still sitting here all scattered. You know, so, so we have different varieties um, that all come back to the same thing, which is me. Okay? So, the, the antidote for getting this uh, instruction is mindfulness. Okay? So remember, mindfulness is remembering the object of meditation in such a way that we don't get distracted. Yeah, and we can stay on it and really, you know, get our mind into it. Okay, so mindfulness, remembering the object. So this is here, you know, this is one of, one of my soapboxes that I go on to, um, because mindfulness is the big buzzword, you know, in society now. Mindfulness this, mindfulness that. But the, the mindfulness they're doing, it's, it's based on Buddhist teachings, but it's not the same mindfulness as we do in our practice. Because basically what they're doing is bare attention, which is just being aware of what's arising in the mind and not getting attached to it, releasing it. And so that's very good, it's very useful for people. Uh, you know, John Kabat-Zinn's done wonderful work helping people with chronic pain using that meditative technique, and now they're using it for obsessive-compulsive disorder, for all sorts of things, okay? So that's very good, but that's not the meaning of mindfulness in a Buddhist context, okay? So here we have the meaning of mindfulness in the context of developing concentration and serenity, and so it means remembering the object of meditation in such a way that the mind doesn't get distracted to something else. Or we talk about mindfulness, using mindfulness in terms of our ethical conduct, and then what is our mind remembering? Okay, it's remembering our precepts and our values, because if we can remember our precepts and our values, then throughout the day, you know, we, we live better. We live according to our precepts and values. Whereas when we lack mindfulness, then, you know, precepts, values, out the wind. So the mind goes anywhere during the day. And in meditation, if we don't have mindfulness, the mind doesn't stay on the object. It's, you know, floating in outer space. Okay, like usual, huh? How's your mindfulness? Hmm? I remember uh, receiving teachings on some of the daily practices, and they say, 
that if you're uh, you know, doing a retreat on Vajrasattva and you find it yourself instead reciting Chenrezig's mantra that you don't count that. Yeah. And I remember hearing that going, how strange somebody would recite Chenrezig's mantra when you're doing Vajrasattva retreat. That never happened. Until it did. <laughs> yeah. And there you are. And you have, you can't remember for how long you've been reciting Chenrezig's <laughs> mantra in the middle of my Vajrasattva retreat. Okay, so it happens like that. You know, can't even remember the mantra we're reciting. Okay, so then he continues. It is insufficient for mindfulness to not forget the object. The mind focused one pointedly on the object must ascertain it clearly and firmly. Okay, so this is important. It's insufficient for the mindfulness to not forget the object. So just having mindfulness not forget the object isn't the whole meaning of mindfulness. Okay, rather in addition to not forgetting the object, the mind has to be able to stay on the object one-pointedly, and then ascertain it clearly and firmly. So you have to know what your object is. Okay? And, and ascertain it. It can't be, you know... I mean, at the beginning it's going to be fuzzy, but you know, it should be getting clearer as we go on, not more, not fuzzier. Okay, then, when absorbed in concentration, the two faults that occur, okay, so the, the previous four, uh, one of laziness, that start, that uh, occurs when you start developing concentration. Okay, so there's a context and a time for each of these. When you start, it's laziness. Yeah, when you're, um, when you're, kind of getting your mind going on concentration, then you forget the instruction. Okay? After you, meaning you forget the object. When you remember the object, then, you know, when you're absorbed in concentration, then there's two faults that come, laxity and excitement. Okay, so we'll get into uh, what they are in a minute, okay? But I want to continue reading what he says. So he says their antidote is introspective awareness. Okay, so we always hear the pair mindfulness, introspective awareness. We hear them together. Yeah, because they are. They're kind of, they come together a lot. So introspective awareness examines thoroughly whether laxity or excitement has arisen. So introspective awareness is a mental factor that monitors the mind. It knows what's going on with the mind. Yeah. So it examines, is laxity there? Is excitement there? Am I on the object or am I falling asleep? Or am I on the beach? You know, where's my mind? Okay. So introspective awareness examines thoroughly whether laxity or excitement has arisen. Those most skillful are able to detect and counteract laxity and excitement as soon as they threaten to appear. 
So even when they're all, they haven't yet appeared, but they're threatening to appear, you can figure that out and identify them. That's pretty sharp, isn't it? You have good introspective awareness if you can do that, because they haven't even blown up in your manifest form, but you can see that they're coming. Okay, those of um, average skill are detect and counteract them as soon as they appear. So they have to appear, then you realize, oh, laxity's here, uh, excitement's here, and you counteract it. Okay, those with lesser skill counteract laxity and excitement not long after they've appeared. So they appear, and then without waiting too long, then you're able to identify them. They don't mention what happens when they appear and it takes you until the end of the meditation session when you hear the bell to realize that they've appeared. Okay, has that ever happened to you? Yeah, you're off on something and you don't realize until you hear the bell at the end of the session that either laxity or excitement is there. So they don't have that one listed on here. Okay, what then differentiates lethargy on the one hand and laxity and excitement on the other? Okay, so this is important. Lethargy has the aspect of physical and mental heaviness and its object is unclear. It is as if darkness has descended on the mind. Okay, so we have to see what lethargy is. Lethargy is your mind is really heavy, it's really dull, the object is unclear, okay, your mind is dark, you're really going towards sleep. Yeah, you haven't arrived at sleep, yeah, but the mind is cloudy, heavy, dark, the object is, you know, really unclear, you're on your way out. <laughs> okay, so that's lethargy. Okay, and now he's going to go into, into the case of coarse laxity. Okay, so this coarse laxity, which is different than lethargy. Okay, although the mind does not move towards another object, it lacks limpidity and clarity, and mindfulness is weak. Okay, so coarse laxity. The mind still has some stability in the sense that it hasn't gone off to another object, like it does when you get distracted. But, you know, there's no clarity. There's, the mind is still very obscured. Okay, so there's no clarity. The mindfulness is weak. You still have mindfulness is associated with stability, so you know you're still on the object, but hardly because your mindfulness is very weak. So you have a little bit of stability, not much weak mindfulness, and uh, the, but the mind hasn't gone completely off the object. Okay, so that is coarse laxity. So you can see how it's different from lethargy. Because lethargy, your mind, you know, isn't on the object. You are, you know, uh, on your way out. You're starting to, you know, 
You know that thing? Do you sometimes, before you fall asleep, you get all these weird images and kind of like dreams and different, yeah, so you might even kind of get into that a little bit in extreme cases. Okay? In the now subtle laxity. So in the case of subtle laxity, stability and clarity are present, but the firmness of the assertion of the object has declined slightly. Okay? So there is uh, stability, there's clarity, but there's not intensity of the clarity. Okay? So you're, the firmness of the ascertainment of the object has declined. You're not, the assert, you're not ascertaining knowing the object in a real brilliant way. It's kind of gone down. Okay, so do you, do you see kind of the different steps here? Lethargy, completely, you know, dark, not with it. Uh, coarse, um, coarse laxity. So, um, you know, your mind hasn't left the object, but the mind is not at all clear and it's not ascertaining the object very, very well. Okay? Then in the case of subtle laxity, you know, you're, you're still kind of on the object. You have some clarity, but the clarity is not very intense. And so you're not brilliantly ascertaining the object. Okay. They say that this kind of subtle laxity sometimes is so subtle that it can really become a big problem for the meditator in, in that uh, you know you have some stability, you have some clarity, you're missing the, the brilliance of the clarity, but you don't realize you're missing it because your introspective aware- awareness isn't so strong. And so you actually think that you've accomplished serenity when you haven't. And so they say that some people get stuck, uh, you know, thinking that they're, they've accomplished serenity when they haven't. And so they stay in those meditation states for a long time until, you know, kind of they die and then they realize, uh-oh, I wasn't really in that state that I thought I was. And then now they get quite confused. Okay, as antidotes to them, then apply the instructions to recall the three jewels, good qualities, imagine light, and think that your winds and mind have merged with the sky. So, lethargy, yeah, usually with lethargy, when your mind is that dull, then they often advise taking a break from your session, going out, looking very long distances, putting cold water on your head and on your face, uh, doing a bunch of prostrations, getting some exercise, you know, doing something very gross because to do something with this, uh, the lethargy. Yeah, but if it's not out and out lethargy where your mind is completely dull, then, um, then, like for the the uh, the coarse laxity, what you do it, because with laxity your mind is is too too your your focus on the object is too loose, and your mind is too low in energy. 
So what you have to do is think of something that's going to raise your energy, raise your enthusiasm. Okay, so that's why they say um, apply the instructions to recall the, the three jewels, good qualities. Because when you meditate on, on the qualities of the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, your mind feels uplifted and inspired. And then that uplifted, inspired mind, you know, very, can meditate much better. Okay? Or you imagine light. So you might, uh, you know, focus on when you inhale, inhaling light, thinking that light fills your whole body mind. When you exhale, think you're exhaling the dark, uh, the dark kind of mind that, that's losing, losing the clarity in the form of smoke and that it's disappearing as it, as it leaves you. Okay? Or another antidote here is think that your mind and your winds merge with the sky. So imagine that your mind, you know, and your, your chi or your subtle energy just, I mean, the sky is huge and vast, and you just think that it merges. Yeah. Because when, when we have le- uh, laxity, or especially with le- um, lethargy, the mind is getting narrow, you know, it's getting duller and narrower. So having some light, having some vastness of perspective is what you want to do. Okay, so, okay, in the case of subtle excitement, yeah, the mind does not remain steadfast on the object, but scatters slightly, okay? So with coarse, uh, well, here he's, here he's talking about subtle excitement first, okay? So you... Um, you don't have, you're not steadfast on the object, but you've scattered slightly. Sometimes they say with subtle excitement that it's like uh, you haven't lost the object yet, but you can feel like underneath that excitement's coming. Excitement is, you know, a mind of attachment. So you can kind of feel that it's going to come, and when it comes, it's going to take you away from the object. So, um, its antidote is to meditate while relying on mindfulness and introspective awareness. Okay, so a subtle uh, excitement. The mind does not remain steadfast on the object, but scatters slightly. Yeah, and so you use mindfulness, renewing your stability on the object and introspective awareness to notice that you've gotten distracted in the first place. Then despite applying mindfulness and introspective awareness, if the mind is unstable and scatters to objects of attachment, it is a case of coarse excitement. Okay? So, the subtle excitement, you haven't lost the object, but there's this wobbly energy you can feel like you're about to do that. Coarse excitement, you're gone. Okay? You're on the beach, you're in the office, you're in the past, in the future, you're, you know, somewhere else. Okay? So that's coarse excitement. 
as an antidote to it, apply the instruction to meditate on impermanence and on the dukkha of the three lower realms and on samsara, and in this way forcefully stop excitement. So with excitement, they say that your that your hold on the object is a bit too tight. So because you're you're like like this, you know, on the object, then the mind, you know, gets the excitement energy, and then it takes you away from the object. Okay, so the mind has too much energy. So what you want to do in that case is to think about something that's more sobering. Okay, so you think about impermanence and death. You think about the suffering of the three lower realms and the dukkha of samsara in general. And so when you think about those kinds of things, then you know the mind is like, ooh, I'm so excited, something good is going to happen and I'm daydreaming and this is so nice. That mind gets flattened, which is what you want, you know, because it's too much energy. Okay? So you have to really be skillful here and know what antidotes to apply when different faults come. You know, because you might think, oh, my mind is very lethargic, yeah, and very dull, I should meditate on death to invigorate it. You know, that's the wrong antidote. Because death makes your mind more sober, it lowers the energy of your mind. And with lethargy, you're already too low, okay? Or even with, with coarse laxity, the energy of your mind is too low. So that's not the time to think about the suffering of samsara or impermanence and death, okay? So you think about those things when the energy of your mind's too high and you've lost the object, or you're about to lose the object. Okay? So, you know, what do you meditate when there's lethargy? Something that's going to make your mind uplift your mind. So the qualities of the three gems, three jewels, or you meditate on precious human life. Yeah, because if you really get into precious human life, your mind, again, feels quite uplifted quite uh, eager to meditate. So in these cases here, what you've, what's happening is you have to temporarily leave your object of meditation in order to do a long-run meditation on another object because that long-run meditation is going to counteract either the laxity or the uh, excitement. Okay, when your mind no longer has the laxity of excitement, then bring your focus back to the image of the Buddha or whatever your, your object is. Okay, that clear? So we have to remember this, you know? <laughs> okay. Okay, so we've done, um, we've done three of the uh, five hindrances. Okay, so laziness, forgetting the object of meditation, and then laxity and excitement. Those two count together as one. Okay.
then okay when then the next uh, thing to occur that disturbs the mind is when either laxity or excitement occur yeah non-application is a fault so rely on its antidote application and apply them as soon as you have become aware of their presence. Okay, so sometimes you may notice that the laxity is there, you may notice that the excitement is there, but you don't do anything about it. You know, it's like, this is a pretty cool daydream. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> yeah? Or you, you could figure out like, Oh, yeah, you know, my, my, you know, my mind, the, the intensity isn't so clear, but I'm kind of there, that's good enough, you know. And so you don't apply the antidote. So non-application of the antidote is the fourth fault. Its remedy is applying the antidote, okay? So what do you use, you know, to identify the antidote to laxity and uh, excitement is introspective awareness. Not because introspective awareness is the direct antidote, but because introspective awareness notices the presence of laxity or excitement. And then when you notice the presence, then you apply the actual antidote to them. Okay? Then, Stressing the intensity of the mind strong gripped on the meditation object um, may enhance the clarity aspect, but increases excitement, thereby making it difficult to attain stability. Okay, so as I was saying before, you're holding the object too tightly, so it enhances the clarity, but it it puts more energy, so it creates excitement, and then when excitement is there, it's more difficult to have stability. Yeah, stability on the object, you know. Okay. Gripping it not firmly but loosely may enhance the stability, but increases laxity, thereby making it difficult to attain clarity. Okay. So you're trying to remedy your, uh, you know, your, your um, laxity by, you know, making the mind the, I don't know, am I confusing getting this back up? Okay, so yeah, so your mind's holding it too tightly, so you, you hold it less tightly, yeah, but then your mind goes to, to laxity, yeah, and then that's that's a fault because when laxity is there, then you can't have clarity. Okay, so you you can start to see that that we have these kind of um, parallel things, you know, the way things are organized. Okay, so the the two qualities we want stability, stability and clarity. Okay, what interferes with stability? Excitement, what interferes with clarity? Laxity, okay. When you have uh, 
Excitement, is your mind holding the object too tightly or too, too loosely? Too tight. Too tight, okay. When your mind has laxity, you're holding it too loose. Okay, when you have excitement, you know, when it's the coarse excitement, what do you need to meditate on? Death and impermanence. Yeah, disadvantages of samsara, something that sobers the mind. When you you have laxity, then what do you meditate on? Something, yeah, precious human life, the qualities of the three jewels, something that's going to uplift the mind. Okay, so you see how you have these two with parallel things. Drawing it out in a little table can be really helpful to help you remember these things. Okay? Okay. Um, Hence, based on your personal experience, when you have the impression that by heightening your grip on the object, excitement will arise, loosen it a degree. When you sense that if you leave things as they are, laxity will arise, raise a degree, a degree. Then balance will be attained. Between the two, bring the mind back from scattering and excitement and seek stability. Okay? Each time you attain stability, Watch out for laxity and generate clarity with intense perception. So they're saying first you have to get stability before you can get clarity. So first you have to work on your excitement so you can get some stability and then work on your laxity so you can get uh, clarity. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Because how can you hold the object clearly if you're not on the object? Okay, so you need, you work on your uh, stability first and then your clarity. But, you know, you go back and forth between them in some kind of balanced way. Okay, meditate on the two alternatively, uh, no, alternately, and you will attain faultless concentration. Do not count solely on uh, stability that lacks clarity and ascertainment's mode of apprehension. Okay? So, you know, go back and forth between these two, you know, holding, so that you get the right degree of how to hold the mind. It's not too tight, it's not too loose. Okay? And then, so you go back and forth, or alternating those and to attain faultless concentration and do not rely solely on stability that lacks clarity and lacks the ascertainment um, you know the the mode of mode of apprehension of ascertainment you know she may be stable but you know your visualization of the Buddha never gets beyond a blob okay so at the beginning, whatever we get, we accept it. Yeah, that's, that's fine. But once you have some stability on the blog, then try and, you know, go over the details a little bit more and remember in more detail what the Buddha looks like and hold your mind on that. Okay.
when you have put a stop to laxity and excitement and abide continually in concentration, the fifth and last fault is over-application. So remember the fourth one was non-application and its antidote was over-application, uh, was application, and then here it's over-application. Um, so what over-application means is you've already remedied the problem, but you keep applying the antidote. Okay, so you've remedied the problem of excitement, but you keep meditating on death and impermanence. Okay, so you never get back to visualizing the Buddha. Something like that. So you're over-applying the antidote. So the antidote to that is stop applying the antidote. <laughs> okay? By, um, so it says, uh, consequently, the antidote is non-application of the antidotes to laxity and excitement and leaving the concentration as it is. By training well in concentration in this fashion, you will progressively attain the nine stages of sustained attention and generate meditative serenity with physical and mental pliancy. Okay. So he's saying if you follow the instructions well, you'll get somewhere. So follow the instructions. Yeah. Don't make up your own whatever. So there's always, you know, some degree of, you know, where you have to make meditations uh, your own and make it so that it personally applies to you. But try and stay within the, the boundary of what the instructions are. Yeah, don't go off. Like I said, you know, changing the color of the deity and doing all these other kind of weird st things. Yeah. Which, you know, as Westerners, we come into Tibet and Buddhism and it's like, you know, Tenrezi's clothes, nobody wears clothes like that. Yeah, you know, he's wearing, well, he's wearing these rainbow kind of pajama things. Well, maybe, you know, the gay pride parade, they're wearing that. But, you know, can't, can't I change what Chenrezi's wearing? Yeah, you know, can't, can he wear tight jeans? That's style is. Well, you know, visualizing Chenrezi in tight jeans is going to give you a whole different energy then visualizing <laughs> you know just kind of some loose you know flowing beautiful silk robe okay <laughs> people this is when I was a couple people always saying you know mama can't we change it and make it look like this and make it look like that and, we don't like the jewelry. I'm a jewelry designer, can't I? <laughs> you know, maybe the jewelry you can change a little bit, but you know, again, not too much. Then the way to conclude uh, your session is as before, you know, with dedicated merit. And then between meditative sessions, meditation sessions as before, read canonical and exegetic works that explain the system of serenity. Yeah, so in your time between sessions, don't just let your mind go roaming the universe, 
but read something that pertains to whatever it is you're meditating on. Yeah. And if you do that, I mean, what we do in the break time between sessions is incredibly important to, to our meditation. Because if we just let our mind, you know, if you sit down between sessions, even during the day, you know, and you're watching TV, what are you going to visualize when you sit, sit down? Are you going to visualize the Chenrezig or are you going to go through the sitcom that you just watched? So then, you know, we have to be so careful about what we imprint our minds with, because that's what's going to come up in our meditation. Okay, so that concludes the section on cultivating serenity. Okay, we, we went through it quickly, you know, but I think we got to the, the highlighted points. Um, and so now the next session is its section is how to train in insight or vipassana, which is the essence of wisdom. So again, three outlines, what to do in the actual meditation session, what to do between meditation sessions, and in the actual meditation session, three outlines, preliminaries, actual meditation, and conclusion. Okay, so the preliminaries are as explained in the context of serenity. More specifically, yeah. So remember, you know, in when in the context of serenity, you start with taking refuge, and you do the seven in prayer to purify and create merit, and then you make requests to your spiritual mentor to inspire your mind to be able to. Uh, you know, in that case, develop serenity. Here we're going to make the request to develop insight. Okay? So more specifically, while correctly relying on a learned spiritual mentor, receive instructions on insight, ardently request the mentors inseparable from the deity, strive to purify negativities and accumulate virtue, and so on. Combining the three is the indispensable prerequisite to the realization of you. Okay, so the three here are purification, creation of merit, and making requests to the spiritual mentor, seeing the spiritual mentor as inseparable from uh, the meditation deity. In other words, from the Buddha. Okay, so, and then all of that, it depends on uh, while correctly relying on a learned spiritual mentor. Okay, so it's emphasizing, you know, learn from somebody who knows what they're talking about, follow that person's advice, yeah, make requests to them, purify your mind, create merit. Yeah, it doesn't say uh, pick up some book written by, you know, Joe Blow, who says he's attained samadhi while astral traveling in the subtle body, and, uh, you know, read his book for three pages and then shift to another book that is going to teach you another method of how to develop concentration uh, while you're lying down and uh, with your feet in the air, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, so it, that's not what it's saying. But, you know, 
And we all kind of giggle and laugh, but you know, you watch what, what people do and it's so difficult for us to follow instructions. Yeah, we always get ourselves into a jam. We go to our teacher, we say, what do I do? The teacher tells us, and then we go do something else. Yeah, or the teachers are present, so we take out a book, Nagarjuna tells us to do something, we say, that's nice, and then we go do something else. I mean, it's amazing how much difficulty we have in following instructions, even after we've asked for them. Yeah? So, we waste a lot of time that way. Okay, then uh, the actual meditation has two parts. So the first part is the way to meditate once the selflessness of person is established. And the second is the way to meditate once the selflessness of phenomena is established. Okay, so there's two... Okay, first of all, there's, we have to look at the word self. The word self means different things in different contexts. Sometimes the word self means the person. Like myself, you know, the person, yeah. Sometimes the word self refers to inherent ex existence, the object of negation in the meditation on emptiness, the object does, that does not exist, but that we grasp as existing. So you have to be, you know, be attentive to this and see when you're reading something which way is the word self being used. Is it referring just to the convention existent person or is it referring to inherent existence which doesn't exist at all. So then we have the terms self-grasping of person and self-grasping of phenomena. And along with that, selflessness of person and selflessness of phenomena. So here, in all those terms, self refers to inherent existence. Okay, what the, the mode of existence that we fabricate and project on phenomena that doesn't exist at all. Okay, so the self-grasping of persons, according to the Prasangikas, grasp the inherent existence of persons and the self-grasping of phenomena grasps the self of phenomena, the inherent existence of phenomena. For schools below the, um, the Prasangika, how they define these two self-graspings is different because the Prasangika differentiate the two self-graspings of person and of phenomena by in terms of what the object is that you're thinking is inherently existent, whether it's the person or whether it's phenomena. The other schools differentiate self-grasping uh, self of person, self-grasping of phenomena by the mode of existence that you're projecting, the false mode of, of existence that you're projecting on top of the object. So it's a very different way. So you have to be aware of this when you're studying the tenant systems, otherwise you get really confused. Okay. So then, you know, 
the self-grasping of persons is grasping the inherent existence of person. The selflessness of person is the emptiness of inherent existence of the person. Okay? Self-grasping of phenomena grasps the inherent existence of all phenomena aside from the person. Usually the word phenomena includes the person, but here in this context it doesn't. It means everything else. And specifically it refers to the five aggregates that are the basis of designation of the person. Okay? So grasping the aggregates is inherently existence, is self-grasping of phenomena, realizing that they don't exist in that way means you've realized the selflessness of phenomena. Okay, you with me? We always think we're with it, and then something comes in this. Okay. Okay, so then the first outline, which was the way to meditate once the selflessness of persons is established. Okay, so before we get into this, let's see if there's any questions. This is a good stopping place. Yes, two questions. The first, they're both related to the serenity section. Uh -huh. um, the first is, sometimes it feels as if multiple faults arise at once. Is that possible, and how do we go about combating that? Okay, so they feel that when practicing serenity, multiple faults come at once. So what would be an example of that? Your, your, your mind is filled with excitement, or your no, your mind is filled with laxity, so you're still on the on the objects, kind of. Uh, and in addition to that, uh, Chen Resi's wearing tight jeans and a tank top. Okay, so yeah, so that would be an example of it. Yeah. And so, what was the question about that? You notice each fault and you apply the respective antidote to it. Okay. And the other question is, um, on laziness, could we also contemplate death and impermanence as a push factor, not to waste life and have no regrets? Okay, so laziness. Um, yeah, in general, when we talk about laziness, one of the antidotes is remembering death and impermanence. You know, so if you're having a hard time getting yourself to the meditation cushion because all of a sudden, you know, you really have to make fruit jello for, you know, your friends that are coming over on Friday night. Remember that? You know, jello with fruit cocktail. Yeah. Yeah, people my age remember that. <laughs> It's so funny that it comes to your mind. Yeah. <laughs> no, where did that come from? I haven't been thinking of it. <laughs> Except in Indonesia, they, they did serve us this kind of jelly, jello kind of stuff. Maybe that's where it came from. Yeah. So all of a sudden, you know, it's like I've got to make my fruit cocktail jello and, you know, get up from my meditation session and go and do it. Yeah. So then that's a good time to think about death and impermanence, you know. Like, okay, you know, maybe I'm going to, I 
make the, the jello, I might die before I even get to enjoy it. And will that jello make me everlastingly happy? And, you know, what are my friends going to think about me if I don't make the jello? You know, I can live with the bad reputation. It's okay, you know, because you're, you're setting your priorities differently. Yeah. So um, when you apply an antidote, either lax or excitement, and then it seems like you go too far. So oftentimes mm -hmm. it seems like there's this right. bouncing back and forth. Yeah, so yeah. do you just keep trying to get more subtle and clear about? Yeah. Yeah. So there is this thing of, you know, you're, you're uh, there's excitement, you're holding it too loose, so you loosen it, then you get laxity, so you tighten it, so you're going back and forth, that yes, that happens. And so that's what he refers to, you just kind of alternate that until you get the right balance. Yeah. So it's a matter of you know, personal experience. And then of course each meditation session will be slightly different. It seems like to work on uh, concentration, like during the winter retreat, where there's, you know, mm -hmm. the really conducive circumstance to do that. So when we're not in retreat in that way, is there a recommendation of kind of how to work on, mm -hmm. like, when okay. we're so busy? And yeah, okay, so in winter retreat, it's easier to work on it, than, but what do we do the rest of the year? Whatever you've established, you know, concentration that you've established in winter retreat, then try every day to do that practice a little bit. So at least you kind of maintain what, what you were able to establish if you can do that. Yeah, in other words, don't drop it all together. before starting your meditation on visualizing the image of the Buddha. And then not trying, not concerning, being so concerned about clarity. Like really, yeah. I didn't really think I worked enough on stability first. Yeah. what you feel is going to be the degree that you need and then when you feel your mind is, is sober again then you go back to your original object of meditation. 
my question was very similar. When I've done that, mm -hmm. when I've had to leave the object of meditation through Lam Rim, uh -huh. there's never a time to come back to the object. It's like, ah. Well, no, there is a time to come back to the object, just you have to make, see, you know, you've done that Lamrim meditation, you've gotten the state of mind that you're supposed to get, then go back to your object. Yeah, as long as the session hasn't ended. Yes. <laughs> if the session's ended, then you remember it, and when you sit down for your next session, you go back to your object. I find it personally very helpful really during the day to train myself um, not to follow all these thoughts and such. It's like a meditation session, mm -hmm. like something and an idea pops up, oh, I could do that now instead of what I planned to do. So it's like I find it quite similar to what I'm doing on the cushion. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so you're saying your meditation session, mm -hmm. uh, outside your meditation session, really... Uh, restraining yourself from following every impulse that comes in your mind because if you can do that outside of the session then it's easier to restrain your mind in the session very true and it'll be easier to get to the cushion too okay so let's dedicate and practice this during the week May the spiritual teachers who lead me on the sacred path and all spiritual friends who practice it have long life. May I pacify completely all our inner hindrances, grant such inspiration, I pray.
Shri Ashrabhasya Bhim.